بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد إنما إلهكم إنما إلهكم الله الذي لا إله إلا هو وسع كل شيء علما وقال تعالى ذلكم الله ربكم له الملك لا إله إلا هو فأنا تصرفون وقال تعالى ذلكم الله ربكم خالق كل شيء لا إله إلا هو فأنا تؤفكون So my dear respected friends This is a bit of a difficult topic because the title was about God, belief, conviction and doubt. So while it's a difficult topic but it's a relevant one, reason why it's relevant is because in the last two to three months uh, I've had to, I've been requested to, to speak about this topic in at least five to seven different places. I was in Sri Lanka, then in India, I had to deal with the same topic. The reason is that currently, <clears throat> the custom, the, the trend is of liberalism. The trend is of consumerism, capitalism. This is what many of us are influenced by, whether we like it or not. Consumerism, just the ability to purchase things, to want to buy things, whether you need them or not. We've just passed Christmas, Christmas time when there's a lot of sales. And at Christmas time, many people, they go to the sale even if they don't need anything. We might find something to buy, they say. One is if you need something, then you make a list and then you go and you look for it. You find the best price, the best option the most suitable product, you buy it and then you fulfill your need. But then the other one is where you go browsing, you don't really need anything but you're looking to buy something. You want that your money is itching you. So you need to spend it, you need to get rid of it. So, do you guys have Amazon here? You have Amazon? You don't have Amazon? Not the Amazon jungle which is in South America. I'm talking, you don't know about Amazon. The main thing is that today to go and buy things, purchase things, the purchase power of the individual is uh, quite strong. So that means we just go and buy whatever we want. Even if there's practicing Muslims, when it comes to consumerism, capitalism, in spending, uh, Umar radiallahu anhu once saw somebody with a package in his hand and he said, what is this? He said, هذا لحم اشتهيته فاشتريته this is some meat which I desired to buy, so I purchased it. So Umar said to him, he said, Kullu Everything you desire, you just buy. Just because you got a desire for it, you buy it. Today, the way the, our consumerism works is that we have access today to things which only the very, very wealthy had access to about a hundred years ago. 
it doesn't matter as long as you've got the money, disposable income, you can literally buy whatever you want. There's nothing that is prohibited from you from buying it. And there are many, many things which would have only been purchased by the very elite before. So today it's in the hands of everybody and we're just, we're just feeding our nafs. We're just feeding our desire because of that. You feel like you want this, you'll just buy it. Now there's nothing wrong with buying things. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy anything. Go and buy. You need something, go and buy. Go and buy the best of it, that's not a problem. But let's not bring it home and hoard it. If you've got something you haven't worn for one year or two years, get rid of it. Don't buy new things and accumulate, accumulate. How many pairs of shoes do we have? If you've got more, more than, I mean, if I say, if you've only got three pairs of shoes, some of you say that those are, that's necessary. I need one for every different outfit I have. How many shall I say is the maximum pair of shoes you should have? Right. If I tell you maximum pair of shoes you must have is ten, some people might get offended. You can buy new things, but give away the old things. It's fine. If you want to buy new things, you want something new, it's halal to buy it. But get rid of the old things. Get rid of the other things. Don't hoard them in your house. So the only reason it would become haram to buy something is if it was haram to buy, or if we're doing it to show off, or if we're doing it because we're pressured to do so, because it's a status symbol. Somebody contacted me once, he says, shall I buy an iPhone or is it a Samsung? I can't remember which one it was at the time. This was uh, about two years ago, three years ago. And I said, what, what kind of a question is this? He says, because if I don't have the latest phone, then people are going to speak about it. Now, if you're forced to do that, then that's a problem. Now, there's a famous atheist, one of the five famous atheists uh, of the past 40, 50 years. One was called, uh, you, everybody's heard of Dawkins, uh, many people would have heard, I don't want to give him that much uh, position. But uh, the problem is that he's been very influential. The several people I've had to deal with who had some problem with their faith, the arguments they were putting forward were literally copy and pasted from Dawkins. Right? I don't think they even believed them themselves. They were literally just took them from Dawkins and they said the same things. They just haven't read any of the answers to Dawkins. That's the problem. Dawkins has been refuted over and over again. And he's done some crazy things himself as well. That's why his popularity has dropped anyway. So he, he, was, he was very influential. Um, he may be a good scientist, right? He may be a good, you know, uh, he, he may be good in some things, but then when you take science into the realm of God, you're going into a realm where science does not even cover it. Because Allah, God, and everything is, is dealing with metaphysics. Meta means beyond physics, beyond the natural world that you can see and experience. Well, you can see. Uh, science, you have to remember that science has, uh, Islam has never had a problem with science. Islam has never had a problem with science. Christianity has, they've got a whole history of it. But Islam has never, in fact some of our greatest, some of the greatest scientists of the Middle Ages were Muslim. You know, your Kindis and uh, the uh, Hayyan and all these others, they were science. So we've never had a problem with science. And science has, shouldn't have a problem with religion. But the problem is, that just like in everything else, you have people with biases, you have human beings. Science is not a problem, but scientists 
those who do science. So you have an engineer and then you have, engin you have engineering. Engineering has got nothing to do with religion. But then you could have engineers, right? You've got psychology and you've got psychologists. You've got science and you've got scientists. Sci you have to remember, if there's anybody here who believes that there is pure objectivity in the world, who believes there's pure objectivity in the world? Does anybody believe that? Anybody believe in pure objectivity? That's a, that, that's a misnomer. You just got, don't get that. Everybody's got subjectivity. Based on either personal experiences, based on uh, personal study, based on environment, based on in, uh, experience growing up, you're going to have a bias. I know of people who have been married, both men and women. I can't understand how some men just hate women. Like, it just doesn't, I don't get it. Because I've had a wonderful experience with women. My mother was a wonderful woman, my sister's a decent woman, and my wife is one of the best women in the world. So I have no problems. Like, what's your problem? I know you get bad women, but why do you think all women are like that? Then you've got some women who just have a problem with men. And because they've had a bad experience. Because they've had a bad experience, they've just written men off as though every man is like that. They've tasted one man, or maybe they've tasted two men, tasted them inexperienced. So now all men are problematic. Can you not understand human beings are very different? I may have five friends and they're all going to be different. I have three brothers, they're all different. I'm not joking. I've got three brothers, they are all different. In a very distinctive way. My three brothers are very different. I've got three uncles from my dad's side, they are very different from my dad. That's brothers, siblings brought up in the same house, same food, same parents, same schools, everything, but they're different. This is the uniqueness of the human being. How can you discount everybody else because of your bad experiences, one or two people or five people, even ten people? The world is bigger than that, come on, give yourself a chance. Why allow the shaitan and why allow the devil to take you away from this? Seriously, I mean, who else does this? Who else divides people? Who else is it that causes people to think everybody is bad? The Prophet ﷺ himself said that if you think everybody's messed up, then you're the most messed up of them. That's not the word he used. He said, if you think everybody's destroyed, halaka, right? Halik, everybody's destroyed, corrupt messed up, uh, this is just the word I'm using in slang, then you are ahlakuhum. You're the most messed up of them because of the way you think. Be positive, be optimistic. I mean, it does seem like I'm going all over the place. Right? But that's the discussion for today. It's all over the place. Because I want, there is no one point to discuss today because there are so many different things. I want to discuss several different things as just points of reflection and thought. Just throw them out there. Then I want to open it up to questions. Because I don't want to create doubt where there's no doubt. Right? That's not what I want to do because that's, I, I don't want to be guilty of that. There is no pure objectivity in the world. Everybody has subjectivity. I've had people coming to me, Muslims, saying, I don't want to marry... Okay, somebody's Indian or Pakistani. I don't want to marry Indians or Pakistanis. Why not? Because they come with baggage. Who do you want to marry then? 
Okay, I want to marry from this background. Well, don't they come with a baggage as well? It's just a different baggage to yours. Right? They may not come with Indian or Pakistani baggage. They'll come with Somali baggage if it's Somalian. Somalians, don't you have baggage? Right? Everybody has baggage. Come on. Right? In fact, some people, they, one person, he says, I don't want to get married. I want to get married to a convert. So why? Because Muslims come with baggage. Don't converts come with a different type of baggage? I come with baggage. Come on, man. Everybody comes with baggage. Ba Do you understand baggage, right? Right. Do you guys say the same thing in Norway? In Nosh? In, in, you guys say the same thing? Baggage? Right? It, human beings, sometimes it's just the way we think. So, it, basically this person is saying that among those who are already Muslim from the various different backgrounds, whether they're Turkish, Indian, Egyptian, Pakistani, Somali, I can't find any decent person. I must find somebody who's a convert. I, maybe they just enjoy a different type of baggage. That's what they're trying to say. It's just human fallacies. Humans, the way they look at things, and it's just self-deception at the end of the day. So now going back to the whole science thing, you've got scientists who are supposed to be objective, and in the postmodern world we're living in, right? The, uh, what characterizes the postmodern world? Currently we are in postmodernity or even beyond that. What characterizes it, especially in Europe, is that they have taken away religion from public spaces right religion should not be in the public space religion should not be in school uh, religion should not be in the workplace if you are a christian then keep your christianity at the door don't bring it inside if you're a christian don't let it come into your teaching don't let it come into your work so slowly slowly religion because it was uh, uh, Europe was Christian, primarily Christian. They were they were ruled by Christian, the Christian Church, much of much of Europe. I can't speak for every area, but much of Europe was ruled by. What about Norway? Was it ruled? By, was it a Christian? Uh, the Church was it the same thing? Right? I don't know. Too. I know about France and England and the mainland, but I'm not sure about Scandinavia. So they've had a bad experience. The Church did a lot of problems. Some Muslims have also caused problems in the world, you know, because not every ruler who claims to be a Muslim is a good Muslim. Religion is as good as you practice it. The religion of Islam is wonderful. I can co keep uh, going around and de declaring that to everybody. But it's only as good as me practicing it. If I practice it properly, it's a wonderful thing. Otherwise, it's just a claim. But Christianity, they did quite a bit of persecution Quite a bit of oppression was done in the name of Christianity in Europe. And probably the worst place where that happened was in France. That's why today you see France is probably the most antagonistic towards religion. That's why they have an extreme form of secularism. An extreme form of liberalism. Which is a militant liberalism. A militant secularism. Right? Secularism is supposed to be that let all ideas flourish. Let all ideas be exhibited and displayed. But no, not if it's religious. That's becoming militant now. That's why they don't allow women to go to beaches with clothing on. Because that's against liberal values. According to my definition, according to their definition of liberal values. So what you have is, you have, unfortunately, you have some scientists like Dawkins and others who have an agenda, so then 
because science is very powerful today, because one of the most dominant themes today is of science. This is the scientific age, all right? So anybody who does science is given a very high position. He's a scientist. Wow. This is not rocket science. We use this even in our, you know, in our expression to say something is not difficult. This is not rocket science. As though science is like the biggest thing in the world, right? Science has told us many great things. So now if anybody is a scientist and he's got grudges, he can abuse science for that reason. I give you an example. I would say, uh, I'm not an expert on this, right? So I'll make it very clear when I'm, you know, <coughs> that I'm not an expert on these things. But evolution has confused a lot of people. Reason it's confused a lot of people is because there are many fallacies that have been built into evolution, the whole theory, and have been taken as fact now and not to be questioned. Now I can immediately sense that there are people who are maybe sitting here like, what is he talking about? Why are you saying that for? Right? If you don't believe me, there are two lectures I would suggest you go and watch. Because I said, I'm not an expert on this, but I know enough of this to be convinced about this fact. Right? And listen to the lectures and then we can speak. One is by Mufti Zamilur Rahman. And the other one is by Usman Ali, Maulana Usman Ali. He's doing a PhD in biology. And Mufti Zamil, he was a medical uh, student candidate at Cambridge. Then he became an alim and a mufti. They've done, two lecture, uh, they've done a series of lectures on evolution. And they've shown how high school and college books on evolution with the various uh, depictions of how the evolution, uh, 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 what do you call it, progressed. Where the, those pictures and so on have been debunked, have been shown to be false, but they still continue to publish them. Right? They still. I give you my personal example. I was reading a book called It's Not Rocket Science. Literally. That's the name of the book. It's by Ben Miller. It's a wonderful book. Those of us who are not, into, who are not from a science background and you want to understand science like in a very easy format, Astronomy, food, uh, food science, really good for those who like to cook, right? I learned a lot from food science, right? Uh, astronomy and all that, it's wonderful. When he got to the, uh, the DNA, etc., when he got to the section evolution, he said, while these facts cannot be proven, all right, but to question, you can't question them because they've been agreed by the experts. I was like, this is where you lost me. This is where... You've just lost my trust. But at least, you were, at least you were honest enough to say that there is no proof for this, but it has to be taken as... No, he didn't say there's no proof for it. He said, though this is a theory and it's not fact, but it has to be taken as fact because I'm not, I don't want to paraphrase. I don't want to mention his exact words because I can't remember them right now. But that's where he mentions that. So at least he was honest enough to mention that fact. But he was saying, you can't question this. When there's a, you see what you have to remember is that when there's a culture of something, a dominant idea that prevails, it's very difficult for people to speak counter to that narrative. Because everybody's going to say, are you stupid? Are you crazy? That's a knee-jerk reaction. That's the way humans react. That's why some cultures are very bad cultures. If cultures are oppressive cultures, like a culture... Uh, we have some cultures where they're very oppressive towards their daughter-in-laws. Very difficult for people to break out of them. Now we can see that clearly that that's a problematic culture. And it's only the very brave and the very strong that will be able to come against that culture. Otherwise everybody will say the same thing. And everybody will do the same thing. It's the same kind of thing here. 
if you look at evolution with a proper objective mind, and I'm not saying that evolution is all wrong. There are many aspects of evolution we as Muslims have, are not like a lot of people because they don't understand the whole evolution thing properly. They just say what, the Christi- what some Christians say, that all evolution is wrong. And the reason why Christians have to say that is because in the Old Testament, there is a, there is a statement there of when the world, 6,000 or 7, I can't remember how many thousand years ago it was supposed to be created. And the whole evolution theory goes against that. So because it goes against the Bible, they have to literally throw the whole thing out. Now, there are certain aspects about evolution that you cannot deny, that are clearly, you know, clearly marked. But then to go back and then to theorize and then to say that's fact, that's highly problematic. Especially about the creation of Adam, salam, the first human being. That is, a very, that, that is a very contentious area and that's where we can't negotiate at all. Right? And there's no proof anyway because it's going back too far right? to project things like that in the past. So we're not saying that we disregard everything of it. No, there are certain things that are quite clear. But there are other things which are not clear. Just because some things are clear, you can't say everything is clear and accept the whole thing. The theory of evolution is a massive, very widespread theory. It's not just one thing. There are, it spans several different, uh, several different uh, what do you call it, um, sciences and disciplines in which that has to be discussed. So... Um, I would suggest anybody who's interested in that topic, because I'm not a specialist on there, you would go to zamzamacademy.com and listen to those lectures to give you that understanding, all right? To, to, to look at it and then you can discuss it. So now what we have is that we have scientists who have an agenda, who have some animosity, whether that be against Christians, Muslims, all religions. They use their position in science to, uh, to basically uh, uh, express that criticism. And people think now science is problematic. Science is not necessarily problematic. It's scientists, those who do science, who have an agenda sometimes. Now, where this all began from is that we, we've got Richard Dawkins. As, I'm, I'm trying to go back and tie it all up now, right? So I don't leave any loose ends. If I do, then please remind me of those loose ends at the end and I'll try to tie it up. So I started this point from in the last 56 years, there's about five major uh, atheists who've caused a lot of confusion among people because they were very eloquent and then the world of YouTube. And so we're talking about Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and then a few others. Now what's very interesting is that Christopher Hitchens is an atheist. He's got a brother in England who's a Christian and he's a journalist. His name is Peter Hitchens. Very interesting guy. He gave a talk a few months ago. And he was talking about how in the West, religion has been pushed out of the public space, of public life, right? From the media, from work, from other places, right? And he says that soon people are tiring of consumerism. Consumerism, which I started talking about, is a nafs issue, is an ego issue. It's feeding the self, it's feeding one person's avarice and greed. Right, just to buy whatever you want, uh, looking for the next phone, looking for the next product, the next upgrade, the next update, right, the next handbag, um, and so on. For example, in America, there's one community that I know, and one of the the women, they, all their their husbands are like these doctors and engineers, and they're always out of work. And the women, Pakistani women, Indian women, you know, they they're at home, 
and uh, to keep, you know, their husbands indulge them, right? They make all the money and they say, okay, spend. So one of them was bought a SUV, a Mercedes SUV. And the Mercedes SUV was supposed to be a very safe car. So because the women are taking out the kids, so okay, SUV. Now, uh, because she bought it, her husband bought it for her, all the others, now they also want their husbands to buy it for them. Alright? You, you, this is humans, we copy one another. Men do this, women do this, everybody does this. Right? This is humans, what they do. Consumerism is not going to give the heart anything. It just gives the ego something. When you receive your Amazon order and you open the box, how do you feel? Don't you feel really nice when you open the box? I don't know what, do you know what they put inside there? You work in Amazon. What, what's the dust they put inside there that when it, it makes you feel really good and euphoric? Right? What is it that they put inside? Is it secret? No, there's no secret. There's no secret. So can we buy that stuff from Amazon? Because if you could buy that, we won't have to buy anything. We'll just smell that dust every day. You know, I don't understand how people buy things on credit. And then they pay for the next 10 years. You bought some sofas in the house. And you have to pay for the next 5 years, next 10 years. And by that time, by the time you finish paying, or before you finish paying, they're going to get worn out. Or you buy a TV, a big TV, or whatever. And I personally don't buy anything I don't have the money for. I'd rather have it and enjoy it, feeling I don't owe anything on this. It's just this weird idea that just forcing us, because the whole economy works on how many people go to the shops at Christmas, on Black Friday, and other times. That is how they look at the health of the economy today. And so we have to do this, we have to buy, right? So he's saying that soon though, people are going to get tired of this whole thing. They're already getting tired because it doesn't give your, it doesn't give your real soul and your heart anything. You need spirituality, you need something to sustain. So then what he is saying, Peter Hitchens, he is saying that when that happens, and people are going to look for some spirituality, Christianity will not be a candidate anymore. The reason, two reasons. One is, <clears throat> it has been taken out of the public, it has been taken out of society. And number two, any Christianity which is left, is a feel-good religion now. None of the difficult aspects of Christianity remains anymore. All of that has been watered down. Right? Oh, that's just the spirit. That's the, 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 we just look at the Bible in a spiritual way. Right? We just look at it as a... Uh, there are, I remember once when I came across a quote from the Bible saying that the swine is unlawful. Is the, the flesh of uh, pig is unlawful. So I was quite surprised that if it's so clearly, you know, for us, if there's something clearly in the Quran, you're not going to have Muslims in at least the majority saying it's okay. You'll have a few maybe who still say it's okay, but the majority will never say that. That's the kind of we're used to, right? We're used to that kind of an attitude. So then uh, I've got a friend who is quite an expert on Christianity. He's from that tradition. He also knows a lot about Islam. So I asked him the question. And he said, well, the reason is that in the third century, they decided to excise, do away with all dietary restrictions. So I'm not sure what the rules are now. I guess if it's healthy, it's fine. If it's not healthy, it's not, you know, maybe that's the modern rule. But there, there, there is nothing. Like in the Jewish faith and the Islamic faith, we still have a lot of dietary restrictions. We have halal, they have kosher. And believe me, kosher is much more difficult than halal. We can at least go outside and buy a vegetarian dish. They can't even do that. They have to get a kosher vegetarian dish. 
because even the vegetables have to be treated in a particular way. They can't have meat and uh, milk together. So for example, if you've had cereal for breakfast, you can't have meat, according to one fatwa of theirs, for eight hours. And the other fatwa is four hours, it's a bit lenient fatwa. Right? One fatwa is eight hours difference, the other one is four hours difference. Ours is not that difficult, believe me. We think it's difficult, right? Our halal laws and we can't buy this, we can't buy that. Uh, but theirs are even more difficult because I've, I've, I've been with uh, you know, Jewish colleagues uh, you know, several times and it's very, very difficult for them. So, Christianity, what's left of Christianity is just a feel-good religion. In fact, many churches, what they're doing, and I don't know about here, but in America and other places, to attract people to come to church, nobody wants to come for worship anymore. That doesn't sound modern enough to us anymore, right? They do relief work. And relief work is a very altruistic human demand, or, uh, and people come for that, right? Otherwise, all the difficulties have been taken out. So then Peter Hitchens says, he says, Islam... People are going to look towards Islam, he said. Because Christianity is pushed out, it's become a feel-good religion. Islam is still a viable religion with all, you know, wholesome religion. He goes, people are going to look, for, look in Islam. But then he gives a warning. And he's talking to Christians, he's not talking to Muslims. But he's saying, but Muslims have to be careful because they've also got people who are trying to water down their religion. Right? You know, you've got fatwas, hijab is not necessary, you, got, you don't need to pray, you don't need to do this. We got that fatwa as well. Now anybody who's got that kind of an idea and who finds Islam difficult, personally I would just advise them start a new religion. And good luck to you. Don't try to change this you know, religion the way we have it because I'm quite satisfied with it. I enjoy it and a lot of other people do as well. So I don't want you touching my religion. The way it's been understood for 1400 years. But if you don't like an aspect of it, well, just make another one up. Nobody's stopping you. Postmodernism, right, which means relative truth. You do what you want, I do what I want. As long as I don't harm you, I'm fine. That's what postmodernism tells you to do. What is postmodernism? That if you believe in something, well, let you believe in that. As long as you don't harm me with it, it's fine. Right? Uh, modernity said there should be one truth. But they discovered soon that they couldn't be one truth. So then they went to postman and like relative truths. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And that is what creates much of the difficulty today in Muslims. And I know that for you guys in Norway, somewhat more challenging than in England. We've got challenges as well. There's challenges even in Muslim countries. So don't think there's any place in the world right now that I know of where there's no challenges. Maybe Turkey is probably the best place so far. They have their own challenges. But... Um, England we have challenges but I from my experience coming back and forth to Norway both here Bergen other places um, I've heard that in schools they really challenge faith here they really ask questions because when we've had questions before even the last time I came and before that the questions were very about faith how to you know reconcile faith with liberalism with secularism today right there's a lot of, now the reason why that's so difficult to deal with is because Islam or any religion should have some very fixed ideas. All right, now follow, uh, follow me on this. They have fundamentals, axiomatic beliefs, an orthodox substratum of beliefs that are non-negotiable. Right? You know, we have some, uh, some issues in Islam which are open to interpretation. There's an ikhtilaf, there's a difference of opinion. But there are other things which the world over Muslims, whether you be in Africa, subcontinent, India, Pakistan, uh, the West, Every Muslim will believe in that same thing. It's not negotiable. 
right? There are, we have non-negotiables, axiomatic, fundamental beliefs. What are the fundamental beliefs of secularism? Something that was taboo 30 years ago, and the Prime Minister of the UK condemned it, today is completely fine. And if you condemn it, you are, you are a problem. Today, what is considered to be taboo, in 30 years we don't know what that's going to be. Incestual relationships, bestiality, are considered taboo today. But in 20 years, 30 years, we just need the right effort. And there's books about how to indoctrinate and change the... You know what's going on with, Google, uh, with, uh, with Facebook and that Cambridge Analytica and the changing of perceptions. There are millions, if not billions of pounds being spent behind mind games, influence. All right? And we need to wake up to that fact that we just don't become part of that whole game. That we don't even think for ourselves anymore. We have to think for ourselves. So, when we have liberalism and secularism, which is supposed to have no principles because everything is fluid. Believe me, the, um, homosexuality, that didn't take me by surprise because that's something that people have been involved in to a certain degree as, you know, back as, you know, quite back. There's always been, you know, there's always been people who've been, we've, it's mentioned in the Quran, etc. But the one thing which really, really took me by surprise is gender fluidity. Children confused about their gender. That took me by surprise. I don't know about you guys, but I, that was like, wow, where did that come from? How do you get away with that? But again, it's because there's no fundamentals. As long as you can get the public to start tolerating something and then agreeing to it, it's fine then the rest of us have to suffer with it. And that exposes those of us who don't want that attitude to, for example, come in front of our children. There's a, there was an interview recently of this mother, married for 20 years or something, and then her husband decided he's a woman now. Right? And she says, look, what she's saying is, I'm... I have, be, I have experienced this. I'm in the middle of this. Generally, the media puts out stories of individuals and celebrates them as though, wow, you came out, that's wonderful. But what about the whole families that they've destroyed? Nobody speaks about that. It's not a fair game, I'm trying to say. And most of us don't care to research. We just take it. Okay, good, finished. I'm getting my food every day. I can buy whatever I want every day. My life is good. My house is good. Right? My marriage is okay. Fine. I don't need to look at this. You could hear the sorrow, the, the anguish, the destruction in her, in her life that this is what's happened to my husband. What do, what do we do now? So... Secularism has no fundamentals. As long as you can rile up enough support by discussions and debates and so on, it's difficult in the first, but eventually people get to accept these things, it becomes permissible. And that's because humans are making the decision. And the other reason for that is, uh, we, we have a course at White Thread Institute, we have a course called um, the Islamic Theology course, the Faith Foundations course. So in there, one module was the, uh, the proofs for the existence of God. 
proofs for the existence of God. Now traditionally speaking, there's been several proofs for the existence of God. Uh, the cosmological proof, and you can search this online, you'll find them, right? Uh, there's ver various iterations of the cosmological proof for the existence of God. Basically using the cosmic system, the whole world and the universe to point towards a God. That's one proof. Another one is called the teleological proof for the existence of God. And then you've got the ontological uh, proof for the existence of God. These are three famous ones and then you have several other proofs for the existence of God. Right? So when we were undergoing this study, I was thinking that maybe we should devise, and this was a premature idea, maybe we should devise an experiment, like in a proper scientific way, uh, take 200 atheists or people with confusion and then expose them to each one of these proofs for the existence of God and see which one is most effective. Right? But by the end of it, what I realized very clearly is that it, it will not be a sound experiment. The reason is that every human being is unique. Especially in this time of individualism. You see, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, if you read the seerah, the history of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the lead, there were two famous tribes in Medina Munawwara, the Arab tribes, there were two famous Arab tribes and who were actually essentially one from their forefathers and there were three Jewish tribes and there were two famous Arab tribes. These two Arab tribes, one of the leaders was Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh and the other one was Sa'ad ibn Ubadah. Right? One of the leaders became Muslim. He embraced Islam. And do you know what happened? The entire tribe embraced Islam because of him embracing Islam. Imagine, God forbid, your father came home one day and had some other totally different idea. You would find it difficult today for even children to follow their own parents today. We're living in a time of individualism. Everybody has their own thought. How many of you here how many of you sitting here, especially if your parents were, or your children, I mean, it could be either way, right? If you're from, were originally from one country and you've come here, and the rest of us are born in the West, different paradigms. How many of us think, I know I don't think 100% alike as my father. I know I don't. How many of you do? Or your children for that matter. How many of you think completely alike? We're living in a time of individualism. That time was a time of tribalism. It had its problems, but the one benefit of it was that when one guy got it right, everybody got it right. But today, that's not the case anymore. So that is the experience of that time. But today, it's a, it's a, it's a totally different story. So, as I said, science doesn't have a problem because science does not deal with several... Science can't tell you how beautiful something is. That's not science. Aesthetics is not science. That's, that's a philosophy. That's not science. All right? Science can't tell you about God because God is meta. It's above that. So science doesn't even have the realm of God in there. Right? It's silent about God. It neither says yes or no. God is a different... Uh, God is beyond that. But when scientists begin to speak about God, then they, as a scientist, that's a problem. Right? That's a problem. For, uh, let, let's take another simple example. One of the biggest examples, I've had this question posed to me about three weeks ago. If God is merciful, right? these are cookie-cut questions by the objections. Right? If God is all-merciful, then why does He allow children to suffer? Have you ever thought about that question? Right? Or had it? 
Why does he allow children to suffer? Why does he allow anybody to suffer? Like why children? What's wrong with the adults, right? Why should adults suffer? Right? We always say the children, right? Well, what about adults? Nobody should suffer if you don't want suffering. Now, again, this is a question that is quite simple to understand. Number one, this question is coming from a Christian perspective, not from a Muslim perspective. Right? So wake up and understand what the Muslim understanding of Allah is. And this question will dissipate straight away. Why? Don't we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has at least 99 names? Have you ever looked at those names carefully? Yes, Allah is Rahman and Rahim, merciful, gracious. Allah is Wadud, the very loving. Right? Allah has many names of beauty, mercy. Allah has those names. But that's not the only names of Allah. He also says that all harm comes from Him. He also says that He's the avenger. He will avenge. He's also the mighty one. Right? He is also the one who will vanquish and who will take apart, you know, when he has to. So to think that if there's a good, merciful God, you can't have suffering and that can't be reconciled is because your definition of God is problematic, is limited, is restricted. Our God has many names and all of those names can manifest themselves. So a simple example that I give from a personal experience is once myself and my friend, we were standing in front of the Victoria Falls in Zambia. Right, you can see it from the Zambia or the Zimbabwe inside. It's an absolutely beautiful, stunning display of that cascade of water that's coming down. It's amazing. So, either he said first, he said, look at the beauty of Allah. I said, look at the majesty of Allah. Beauty and majesty are two opposing ideas. But they were reconciled here. The majesty, the whole majestic body of water just plunging down. It would just kill anybody. But then it was beautiful at the same time. That's Allah, Allah's beauty and majesty being demonstrated in a single, in a single phenomenon and idea. And then number two, who said that suffering was a problem? Why is suffering a problem? If the, imagine a world without suffering. Would there be happiness then? If there was no suffering, concept of suffering at all, would you ever have happiness or would we all be automatons? Just going about with no emotion. Suffering is an emotion because the opposite of joy and happiness and excitement. There would be none of that. Everybody would be the same. It would be a boring world to be honest. People, you see, I don't think people who even ask this question even think of it too carefully. They just hear it, oh yeah, that means God isn't there. I don't want to believe in God. It's too difficult to believe in God, that's why. Right? So let me, this is my argument against God. The other thing is that, let's just say that there's a person who doesn't believe in God and uses this as an idea and he's got a mother or an auntie who suffers for 10 years from cancer. 10 years suffering. I, God forbid that on anybody. Right? But it's a reality. My mother suffered from cancer, so I know. Now, suffered in cancer. What is your worldview about why she's suffering? Why is she suffering for? If there's no afterlife, and there shouldn't be suffering, but there is. I mean, it's a, suffering is a reality, so you, know, you can hypothetically question it as much as you want, but it's a reality, so let's deal with it. All right? What is your view of why she's suffering? I know what my view is. 
What is your view? Is she suffering for no reason? What a miserable world. For us, as Muslims, suffering requires sabr and patience. And patience and perseverance and endurance is one of the most rewarded acts in Islam. Allah bashiri sabirin innama yuwaffa sabiruna ajrahum bighayri hisab. Right, look at what Allah says. وَبَشِّرِ sabirin. Give glad tidings to those who are patient. Allah doesn't mince words in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't use superfluous. He is not verbose. Right? He is very particular. He doesn't waste words. But here he says, وَبَشِّرِ sabirin. Give glad tidings to those who are patient. الَّذِينَ إِذَا أَصَابَتُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَالُوا إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ Those whom when a calamity strikes them, they say, wherefore Allah... Right, we are for Allah, we belong to Allah ourselves, and we're gonna to return to Him. So if my water fell over, I'm saying inna lillahi wa inna raja, meaning that why should I suffer so much as my water falling down or my handbag becoming uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, somebody dropped tea over it, nice Louis Vuitton bag, somebody dropped tea over it, God forbid, right? Five hundred pounds uh, bag and then somebody drops tea over it, or somebody scratches your car. I'm going to go back to Allah myself. It gives you a way to calm yourself and deal with it. They say, Inna lillahi wa inna alayhim salawatun. These are the people upon whom are blessings. Allah loves these people so much that He gives them blessings. Salawatun min rabbihim wa rahma and mercy. Wa muhtadun. And these are the guided ones because they know what to do. If you've got two people in the world who are suffering, and one thinks that I'm going to be rewarded for it. The other one doesn't know why he's suffering. Which one is better off? Which one is better off, do you think? From the way to deal with it? You guys don't know. Well, come on, man. Give me an answer. You want me to do all the talking? Wake up. The one waiting for a reward. At least he's got an idea. That, okay, I'm going to get something for this. Now, you know, the counter question to this is like, but that's just a, that's just a theory. Why should you believe it? What's the proof for that? You know what? I have enough proof for that myself. But I'd rather have that than nothing. They say that's just a feel-good factor. Well, what's wrong with having a feel-good factor for human beings? Is that a crime? To feel that you've got a theory? Is that a crime to believe in that? Why should it be a problem to believe in that? Humans need solace and comfort. And this is a mean that Allah has provided. You can't, pro you can't prove that it is not being provided by God either. Just because you deny God, you deny all of this. You have to. Because if you deny God, you can't, you can't accept free will. You can't accept paradise and hell. You can't accept reward and punishment. All of that has to go down. Then you're going to have to try to answer how people's experience of free will is to be explained. I'd rather have that theory. So why did your, why did your auntie suffer for 10 years? For us, I know that my mother when she suffered and she passed away from it, Rahimahullah, I know she's a shaheed. Because I've been told that anybody who dies in a sickness, right, one is dying on the battleground, that's, a, that's difficult. But for people who die in an accident, there are 70 categories mentioned in the hadith of people who die in various different ailments and sicknesses and accidents that they are shaheed in terms of the hereafter. They will rise on the day of judgment as a shaheed. The benefit is that all their sins are forgiven. The Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, Al-Mabtunu Shaheedun, the one who dies from a stomach problem. A woman who dies giving birth in pregnancy or for, due to pregnancy is a shaheed. Now at least her, you know, we don't know what's going to happen after we go. 
right? Nobody can prove that right now, uh, from a you know experiential perspective. But at least for the people she's left behind, they're gonna feel Alhamdulillah, she died as a shaheed. You see what I'm saying? Rather than somebody who has no theories, like why did she die for? Right? As a miserable world, why did she die for? So all suffering isn't. The other thing is that when there's a catastrophe that hits an area like a tsunami or anything else. There will be some people there whose lives have been miserable for a very long time. Right? They've been miserable for a very long time. Now, this is, I think, the, you can say one of the fundamental points that we, have, we as Muslims should bring to the forefront of our mind to resolve a lot of these issues. And you know what that point is? The point is that this world is only a testing ground and is not our final abode. The hereafter is. This is just the test. If you can make that a reality of our understanding, a lot of these questions will be dealt with. That is why Allah has never promised that you will have full joy in this world. That you will never, that you will never have a difficulty. The Prophet ﷺ, our Prophet, was made to go through difficulties before he died. His sickness, his terminal illness before he died, he suffered. Such a degree, his daughter couldn't bear it, Fatima radiallahu and she said, Wa karba aba. Oh, what pains that my father is experiencing. But her father consoled her saying, La karba ala abika ba'da hadhal There will be no pain on your father after this day. Why did the Prophet have to go through pain? Why? When he was forgiven anyway. But you see, another thing that pain does from a spiritual perspective, is that every bit that we tolerate, our status is elevated in the sight of Allah. Now I know that's a God aspect, right? So that you're going to have to be a believer to get that. But Alhamdulillah, it makes me feel good, right? So the Prophet ﷺ is going to leave this world anyway. He's even made to suffer so that his status is even more elevated. And I think the other wisdom is that as ulama have mentioned that if you are ever going through suffering, remember your Prophet, that he also suffered. Remember your Prophet, he also suffered. Right, he also suffered. I just want to clarify that, you know, a lot of people say that when you're a good person, your death will be good. So how come the Prophet ﷺ suffered? He was the best of people. Well, there's two things here. One is the illness from a worldly perspective. The body, the physical, bio, biology, right? Physiologically, the illness that you have to undertake, that's a worldly thing. But what it, when it says that a good person will have a good death that will be very easy, that's actually the extraction of the soul. That is different to the sickness of this world. Even prophets have undergone so many pains. That's why when the Prophet ﷺ in the 10th year lost both his first wife Khadija and his uncle who were basically internal support, his internal pillar and Abu Talib, his uncle was his outside support. He lost both of them in the first year. That's why they call that Amul Huznain, the year of the two sorrows. He was made to suffer all the difficulties because suffering is not the sign of anything in this world. But his death is how you go from this world happy that I'm finally departing this world and death then is a gift for the believer because they're finally going to God. So when a tsunami or anything else takes place, for some people they're lifted out of their misery 
of this world and now they're enjoying the bliss now if you remember the talk i gave last time i came here about 14 15 months ago which was about the journey of the soul after death if i remember correctly where the soul goes right that should tie in with this that our belief of that is that if you die as a good person then it's all bliss for you until the day of judgment then you go to paradise alhamdulillah alhamdulillah right all praises to allah for that but if you don't believe in the if you don't believe in that then you can't now there are some people there who are criminals so this is a punishment for them for that first group of people it was mercy for the second group of people it is a punishment then there's going to be neutral people in between and allah just wanted to take them at the end of the way end of the day we're going to die one day whether that be why is it necessary to die after 70 Generally people do that because we live in a predictable world generally that people die around that age But you can die at, you know, five, you can die at ten. What's wrong with that? At the end of the day, the main thing is that any children who do die, one thing we know for sure Children who die in any state Our belief is whether they were Muslim or non-Muslim Majority opinion is that they will go to paradise Children of believers and children of non-believers as well the stronger opinion is that both of these will go to paradise reason is that they did not come to an age of discernment where they became responsible for making a judgment of right and wrong they are innocent so they innocent people will not be punished ever so what i would suggest is i'm gonna i think i'm gonna um i'm gonna maybe mention one or two more points and i'm gonna stop here and then i want to hear from you right because uh, I want to be able to answer your questions and I don't want to be like just telling you about stuff I think about and maybe irrelevant to you so um, that's why I want to open it up to questions but the main thing is this you've heard of Imam Ghazali Abu Hamid al-Ghazali he, he died in 505 Hijri he's considered the reviver of that cent century he was a absolute master in philosophy in theology in spirituality I mean he's just a genius absolute genius he died when he was only 55 and universities are still discussing him today, right? Just absolute amazing individual. He came to a point where he started saying that we as Muslims are born in Muslim households. That's why we're convinced about Islam. Christians who are born in Christian households, they brought up as Christians. So they're convinced about Christianity. Uh, Jews, same thing. That doesn't make them right just because you're convinced about something. That doesn't necessarily make it right. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to go to the bare fundamentals and I'm going to use those as my guiding lights, just the bare fundamentals, absolute uh, fundamentals, and I'm going to use that to try to understand what is the truth. So he said, okay, let me figure out first what are the absolute axiomatic beliefs. For example, um, does everybody agree that two is greater than one? Right? One is half of two. That's an axiomatic belief. It's something nobody has to prove. It's like, okay, everybody gets that. Alright? So, he said, let me start from that. But he says, slowly, slowly, when I opened up my mind to skepticism, this is what you call skepticism, to analyze something in a skeptical way, to be skeptic. Now, this is a philosophy. This is the skeptics. This is a philosophy, this is an idea. You will have arch skeptics. If uh, may Allah protect us from uh, becoming, uh, uh, what do you call it, overcome by skepticism, because believe me, then you will question everything. 
For example, you will somebody comes to you and questions who your paternity. Prove to me that you are the child of your father. How would you prove that? How if you guys anybody here was challenged that prove that you are your father's son or daughter, how would you prove it? What what would be your first proof, sisters? Yeah, That's a bit complicated. They they cost money. There's easier ways, isn't it? Birth certificate. There you go. Huh? What can you do online? Yeah, but then birth certificate is easy, right? You have them in your house. No? But you can doctor a birth certificate. You can, you can make one up. I could probably make one up for you if I'm good at typography. And if you go to Pakistan, they'll do it for you anyway. Alright? Maybe Somalia as well, maybe you can make birth certificates in Somalia? A lot of them. Okay, DNA test. Now, those of you who know about DNA, it's, mashallah, it's a... Uh, it's an overwhelming type of evidence, but it's not 100%. It's 99 point something. Uh, somebody I know whose wife were, uh, is the head of a fertility clinic. They had a case recently where they dealt with a couple who'd come in. And they're very careful. They have very particular procedures in place. They had the IVF treatment. They had the child and then the husband, the, the, the man, he's reject, denying the child. And that basically brought in a big problem for the clinic because does that mean there's cross-contamination then? If it's, we use your sperm, so how can it not be yours? So it was a very, they had to bring in, they had to basically consult some of the top experts on DNA in this case and they found that this was an abnormal case. This was a really weird case. So even genetic, genetics can have a problem and abnormality in there. So nothing is 100%. What I'm trying to say is that if you want to be a skeptic, you will even deny DNA. You'll deny everything. Alright? So if you want to be a skeptic, you will have no absolutes, no axiom, axiomatic beliefs, no fixed ideas. Everything is open to doubt. And there's people who have that kind of a thing, that everything is open to doubt. And that's why, you know, if somebody suffers from OCD, God forbid, I saw somebody like that in a wudu, in a masjid, about two weeks ago. And literally he's like, one, two, three, four. And then still, right? Taking so long to just wash one hand. And I'm trying to tell him, brother, it's enough. It's fine. He won't even listen to me. He's so focused. It's a, these are psychological, mental problems. Right? Allah relieve us and Allah protect us from them. So what Imam Ghazali said is that when I started trying to look at things from an absolute perspective, even the absolutes became open to question. Even I started becoming suspicious of and doubting the absolutes. And then he gives the following example which really hits the point home. He said that um, when you have a dream, have you guys had a dream recently? A realistic uh, seeming dream where you are being chased by a dog maybe or you're in an accident or some weird dream like that and you feel like it's so true. You even sweat everything. And then suddenly you wake up and you're like, Alhamdulillah, that was a dream. Well, if you're good, you'll say Alhamdulillah, that was real. Otherwise you'll be freaking out. You'll tell the whole world, I saw this dream and I want an interpretation. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Look, al-hulumu min al-shaytan. Bad dreams are from the shaytan 
All you have to do when you wake up is say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan. I seek refuge in Allah from you. Turn around, ignore him and go to sleep. That's the best remedy. But as soon as you get obsessed by it, you start telling everybody, it's then like the guy that people bully in the playground. If, he, if you know, people, bullies try to bully people. But if the person they're trying to bully deals with it and just like shrugs it off and ignores it, they don't feel like bullying that person because it's not entertaining. But the guy who gets bullied, who gets sensitive, people like bullying them more. It's sad, right? People like bullying them more because you get fun out of it. That's what shaitan does. Ignore the dream. But when you were in the dream, didn't you think it was a reality? Did you have even a doubt that this was not real? You were freaking out. You were scared. When you woke up, alhamdulillah, suddenly everything was fine. Right? You understand what I'm saying? So let me ask you a question now. What about if this is a dream as well? What about if this is a dream as well? And one day we're going to wake up from this and all of this is a dream. How do you know that's not going to happen? Ghazali, rahmatullahi alayhi, when he said that, when I thought about that, it was only Allah who helped me afterwards. Because when you get to that level of doubt where you just doubt everything, then your life becomes miserable. Then the question is, what about if this is not even a reality? And there are people who deny this is a reality. These are just illusions. This is not a reality. So how far do you want to go? So he said it was only Allah who saved him. That's why Allah says in the Quran, أَفَمَنْ شَرَحَ اللَّهُ صَدَّهُ لِلْإِسْلَامِ فَهُوَ عَلَىٰ نُورٍ مِّن رَبِّهِ That it is the one who Allah has expanded their breast for, uh, for, for the light of Allah. Islam for Islam, for submission. They are on the light from their Lord. They are on the light from their Lord. That's why I, I, was, watching, I, I was reading about an, uh, an article that was written about these atheist uh, guys in America. Muslims would become atheists. Uh, they, they were ex-Muslims. And they were going around universities explaining their story. One's name was Muhammad actually. Muhammad the atheist. Such an oxymoron. Yeah, what, a, what a weird idea that is. Right? Um, so one of, them asked, one of them was asked by the reporter, what about your families? He said, the families have disowned us and you know, we're not in touch with our families and everything. How do you feel about that? I feel very bad. You know, we, everybody wants family. So we feel very bad about that. So then he asks him a question. He says, wouldn't it have been easier just to believe then? He said, yes, but we can't. Yes, but we can't. That, sh that struck me a lot. Because at the end of the day, while we do look for arguments and proofs and everything else, at the end of the day, there is a bit of divine decree here. And if there is a person who has doubt, they need to really, and they want to believe, because there are people I've had, they've come to me, like, we've got these doubts, but we want to believe. We need to try to help. One person, came to, one person sent a question to me saying, I don't feel any pleasure in my prayer, so I don't want to pray anymore. And I don't believe then because of that. Another person says, I don't feel any pleasure in my prayer. Can you help me find that pleasure in my prayer? Why would one person have that perspective? Why would you have the other perspective? See what I'm saying? This again, you know, Allah says in the Quran, Right, Allah has sealed their hearts. Sometimes we've done something which is so serious that we stop feeling like wanting to do good, good things. 
a seal is placed on the heart. That's why, you know the hadith which says that whoever misses three Jumu'ahs, three Fridays, taking them lightly, not considering significant. Most people say they become kafir, but that's not what the hadith says. The hadith says that Allah puts a veil on their heart, a seal on their heart. So then they just don't feel like doing anything afterwards. So maybe it's a sin. Make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah will always guide those who sincerely look for Him. Anybody who's sincerely searching, God will guide them if they're sincere. But you know what? Islam is difficult. Any faith is difficult because it goes against your whole ability to do whatever you want. Any religion is like that. If you want to be serious about religion, especially Islam, right? You're going to have to give up and sacrifice. And giving up and making sacrifice is difficult. It's just easier not to believe. That's why I'll tell you something from the statistics. I, most people who don't care about their faith are not atheists. They don't necessarily deny God. But you know what they are? They are apathists. They have apathy. Apathy means indifference. I don't care attitude. Who cares? I've got my food, I've got my sustenance, I've got my clothing, I've got my car, I've got my life. I don't need to care about these things. Why do I need to believe? This is some of the problems that we're incurring. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us. We ask Allah to guide us and give us strength and save us from doubt. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to uh, protect us, our progeny, until the day of judgment. And give us satisfaction because you know, I talked, about the, uh, the, the, I, I talked to you about the intellectual proofs for the existence of God. Um, to, to be honest, there's always somebody who can counter a proof. Right? Intellectual gymnastics is just whoever gives the better argument. But one thing which will never be put into doubt is experience. If you can wake up in the middle of the night and do dhikr and actually feel the presence of Allah with no distraction, that person is never going to be, that person is never going to be taken away. That person is never going to have a doubt. If you felt the coolness of your, your heart in prayer, if your prayers have been answered, if you've made an effort and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you the pleasure and the halawat al-iman, that is the biggest proof because that's experiential proof. Nobody can deny that. So don't let your religion just be an intellectual religion. Let it be a spiritual religion where you actually make an effort to have it come to the heart. Because Allah says, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَشَدُّ حُبًّا لِلَّهِ that those people who believe they love, they are the most intense lovers of Allah. When that happens, Allah opens it up to you, right? Then I'm saying this from a believer's perspective because this won't go down well from a non-belief perspective, right? I'm saying this purely for believers, right? That this is what it is. You want more strength in conviction. You need to show your love to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He will give you more love, right? We ask Allah to make that easy for us. Alright? So there is that why didn't God... Um, just make it that everybody just feels his presence. Right? That would have been easier. Personally, yeah, it would have been easier. Like if everybody could just directly feel that presence easily. Now look, people can feel his presence and Allah does let his presence be felt. There's no doubt about that. People, uh, you know when I said at the end that you must feel his presence and that will just make it so much easier when you've tasted it. Now if he could just give that to everybody as a default, whether you like it or not then this world would not be the test. 
we have to not forget that, remember I mentioned earlier that the, after, the hereafter is the main world forever this world is a temporary world 10, 15, 20, 100 years maybe that's temporary compared to infinity I know it's difficult to grasp that in our mind because we think this world is the end all of everything this is it, you only live once you do only live once All right. but basically the idea is that if that was the case, then the other is like, why don't you go one step further? That why didn't you just make everybody Muslim? Okay, forget that. Why didn't you just, Allah didn't leave Adam and Hawa in paradise? And just keep shaitan out of the picture. So they would never have been misled. And we would have never had to do this. These are all hypothetical questions that are basically probably useless at the end of it. Because really... At the end of the day, we're living a reality of some sort. We're living a reality here. And we have to try to find the best thing that fits this, not something that fits a hypothesis that is not a reality. So, the reason why Allah sent a man and not, for example, an angel, which he mentions in the Quran himself, right? That if I'd sent an angel, people are going to say, we can't relate to angels. They don't eat, they don't drink, they don't sleep. But it's a man like you, look, he's from your own people. And then the fact that he was Arab, well... As we can see, you're in Norway. I'm, I speak Arabic, but I'm not speaking to you in Arabic, I'm speaking to you in English. right? The system is there for propagating this faith from Arabia. You can't say Islam is an Arab faith anymore. Because in, if you just look at India, forget Pakistan and Bangladesh and Indonesia, if you just look at India where Muslims are only 15% of the population, 15%. That's 200 million Muslims, more than the whole Middle East put together. More than Muslims in the Middle East. Most of them don't speak Arabic. So the fact that Allah has provided for the da'wah, for the invitation to reach even without that. But the main thing is that this is a question against the reality of something. This, the, the main answer really is that this world is a test. And Allah wanted to design it this way. We can't question Him about it, we're part of that test. That's our belief. Alright, now you're going to say, but that might not convince him. It's not my job to convince you. It's not anybody's job to convince everybody. If there's one person who, came, uh, who, who mentioned that, you know what, I've got a colleague, he's a man, and his colleague's a woman, he said, I've been giving her dawah for two years, and she, don't, she won't accept. What should I do? I said, don't do anything. Go and talk with somebody else. Why are you obsessed with this woman? Are you going to marry her or something? <laughs> and that's not your problem, but I'm saying that's that problem. Right? There's so many other people you can give da'wah to. Nobody is required to be a super Muslim, like a superman Muslim, that I can give you any answer. There are cases when people have come to me, I don't know the answer, I don't know the answer. I'll try to find out for you. But you don't have to be a super Muslim, and you can't convince everybody. You can't, sometimes husbands can't convince their wives, wives can't convince their husbands of other ideas. This is just another one of those things, we do our best. Right? We do it, but the main thing is that this world is a test ground. That's Allah, He chose to do it this way. And um, we're going to have to deal with it that way. But we have a theory that makes sense. And it's worked. Because there are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world at least, among the 7 billion uh, population of the world. It must mean something. Then you're going to say, how come, if it, if it was true, how come it's not the majority? That's another question, right? Huh? If Islam was the truth, how come it's not the majority? Well... The majority, وَقَلِيلٌ مِنْ عِبَادِيَ الشَّكُورِ as Allah says. Unfortunately, most people get, in this test world, most people they get misled. 
they get misled because of their nafs and their desires and the very few serious ones when I say few I mean it's a good proportion anyways like one third of the uh, one third right majority is not a proof for anything haven't you seen in countries where the majority voted for something and then they found out it was messed up afterwards right democracy that's one of the problems with democracy democracy is great it has other benefits but that's one of the problems that the media can convince you like they did in England about the referendum right and Brexit and everything and now now a lot of them are regretting it except the very arch diehard Brexiteers right okay let's move on what is your response to people who say I believe in God but not in religion I'm spiritual but not religious why not because it's easy I would like to know why not what makes you not want to f uh, religion? People might say, well, it's because religions, I've seen them fighting. Well, it's not religions that fight, it's individuals who use religion to fight. If you really look down, that's what you'll see. There are greedy people. And religion did not make them greedy, they just... Religion is one of the best excuses. That's the problem. Religion is one of the best excuses to get by, to get your, you know, to, to get your, uh, give your cause a legitimacy. Right? That's just a misunderstanding of religion. That's a fitna. That's a, that's a trial. All right? um, so you have to really find out, is it because you don't want strictures? You don't want bounds, boundaries? I believe in God. Okay. What does that mean? What are you supposed to do then if you believe in God? If you don't believe in a religion? Religion is just a cohesive way of believing in God. Just telling you what God is telling you. That's what it is. So come on, out of all of the various different interpret, uh, religions, pick one. Pick Islam because that's the latest one. Right? After Christian, uh, Judaism and Christianity and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm, I'm just being very fast. We could, uh, to be honest, you know what? These questions are very difficult to answer. Because they're loaded questions. And there's a whole thought process of where these questions come from. That's why whenever your colleague at work or university asks you a question like this, don't jump to answer the question. Say, if you don't have the time then, say, well, let's go and sit down and have a cup of chai. Do you know what chai is? Right? And if you can't go bring them home to make a proper desi chai, then take them for a chai latte. They do them in places. Right? You know what I mean. You need to be relaxed and then you need to ask them, why did you ask this question? Where is it coming from? What's the background to this? Then you can help them more. Otherwise, a lot of the time we get stuck in a question and it's not going to get you anywhere. Right? That's why I find these questions very difficult to explain sometimes. I can, we can give some general answers but they don't work for everybody because everybody has a separate exper experience. What are the reasons for rejection of faith? Arrogance, fear, justification or following nafs? All of them. All of them. I explained before that some people have an intellectual problem because they haven't seen the, uh, the arguments from other side. For some people it's a spiritual problem. In fact, there are a lot of people who are atheists who've given up religion because of a bad experience. Because of overly strict parents, overly strict scholars, overly, script, uh, overly script, uh, strict culture, cultural demands. One woman who's about 40 or so when she called me, she was married to a non-Muslim. Pakistani woman, right? Married to a non-Muslim. And she asked me a question, so I said, how did you, we got talking and then I said, how did you end up marrying a non-Muslim? Because clearly she had a conscious and she was worried. So why did you do that for you? She said, well, when I was much younger, my family forced me to marry my cousin or somebody. You know, you know the story, right? And we had no compatibility, nothing, whatever. And basically they tell you that this is Islam. 
They don't take anything else, they don't pray nothing in the house. But when it comes to marrying your cousin, that's Islam. So for that child who doesn't know anything else about Islam except that you must marry your cousin, then that's a very interesting Islam, isn't it? That's a crazy Islam that they have. I'm not, it's not as simplistic always like that, but a lot of the time all atheists need is pastoral care. They're looking for them, they've had a bad experience. Not talking about everybody, I'm talking about a lot of them are like that. And some people, they just don't want to, they're, they're apathy, I don't care. I've got, I've got my, you know, my job, I've got my life, I don't need to worry about all of these things. One day then, the, the emptiness hits them. So there could be many, many different reasons. Number three, how should Muslims give da'wah to atheists? Is this a fard or fard kifaya? I mean, whether to atheists, non-atheists, whatever, let's not blame atheists for everything, all right? Uh, th there's a requirement for everybody to give da'wah. In fact, according to some major scholars, even in the UK and other places, one of the justifications for us even being here is that we must share our faith. So I think it's to some level everybody's responsibility. When I mean responsibility, I don't mean that you become like Jehovah's Witnesses and start leaving leaflets everywhere. That's not what I mean. And going on knocking on people's doors. The best da'wah is that you find out more about your own faith and carry your faith on you in terms of trustworthiness, honesty, beauty, Right? I don't mean just looking good, but beauty means beautiful character. Helping people, compassion, empathy, reflecting the Prophet in your life. That is the best hour you can have because people are looking for that. Not cheating the system and messing around and basically just being selfish. So yes, everybody has that responsibility. How should, what is your advice to people who are sincerely searching for the right path? I've heard that many non-Muslims claiming that they have been searching only to end up as agnostics. They, they have to genuinely seek. I've never been one, so I can't, you know, I, I, just, I can only pray for them. But I can, I can say for sure from the very numerous verses in the Quran, etc. That if somebody sincerely looks and then sincerely reflects that what's stopping me from taking this on? For a lot of people, what's stopping them is that they just don't want to... Oh, you're going to have to pray five times a day. You're going to have to stop... Um, uh, what do you call it? Dating. You're going to have to stop drinking. I love, you know, my sherry or wine or whatever. You know, there's sometimes really small issues that are stopping people from the whole thing. There's one Hindu woman who became a girlfriend of a Muslim guy. And then she got interested in Islam uh, and he said he would marry her, but then it didn't work out. His parents didn't allow it. Now she said that I did not want to become Muslim just for his sake, because he wouldn't marry me in that time otherwise anyway. I wanted to do it for myself. So then uh, I said, look, anytime you need help, let me know. About several months later, she sends me a message that, look, I'm at a point now, I need to do something. That man was out of the picture now. She had read the Quran now. She got to the end of reading the Quran. And she says, now I can't go back to what I used to believe in. There's no way I can do that. 
and there's no way I can go further on without embracing Islam. But I have to come to that point where I must do it, and alhamdulillah, within the next day or so, she became Muslim. Right? I, as another guy in America, he attended every single one of our classes in the masjid for about seven months, more than even the local Muslims. He was there for every program. He was not a Muslim. I let him be. I never told him, believe, believe. Like, I never said that because you can't force somebody to believe. Belief has to come from your own self. I just entertained his questions. One day, I was at home and I get a, I can't remember if it was a knock on the door, a call or whatever that so-and-so now wants to embrace. I was like, what happened now? He was like, that's it. I need to take the faith now. It takes a while for some people. But if they're genuine and sincere, they will keep looking. One day they will get it, inshallah. But find out why you don't want to do it. I would say find out why you, what is bothering you. Right? What is bothering you? Why don't you want to do it? Okay. Okay, that's, uh, 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 I'm glad you brought that question up. No, it, there's a simple answer to it. No, no, no. Ne never fear it. So what the brother is asking is that <sighs> Muslims are cutting people's heads off. Muslims are terrorists. Most of the terrorism in the world is done by Muslims. Let me, let me tell you, let me, this is what they say, right? How do you answer that? How would you guys answer that? Tell me, what's the best answer to that? Most of us will say, yeah man, they're, just bad. they're the bad apples, they're the bad group of the family, that's what you're going to say. Is that, isn't that the answer you're going to give? That's your best answer. But that is not that answer at all. Do you know why? Because it's the wrong question in the first place. It's a false question. Muslims are not the biggest terrorists in the world. But when somebody asks you that question, because, I'll tell you what it is. How many shootings have there been in America in the last two years? Think about it. How many shootings have there been in America in the last two years? Right? Tons of them. But which one of them, when it's a Muslim, when it's a non-Muslim, they'll talk about it for one day, two days, three days, and then after a week they'll give you a roundup of it maybe, and they'll say, oh, whatever, you know. When it's a Muslim, oh no. Now, terrorists. That word comes up. It's never a terrorist otherwise. Oh, that word comes up. The analysts come in. All these big experts, they bring them in and the whole day they talk about it for weeks on end. So then you suddenly start feeling, man, this is the biggest catastrophe. Even though there are more people that died otherwise. Two guys died here, three guys. It's too much. Too many already. But... They make that seem to be the worst thing, right? And you know, this is not just an emotional claim. They've done research that shows that Islam has been linked. Whenever they mention Islam, backwardness, Islam, um, violence, Islam, evil, Islam. And psychologically, you know, everybody's happier, uh, proud about your, uh, your Sudanese? Gambia. Gambia. You're proud of the Gambia, right? But there are bad people in Gambia, like... You've got bad people in Gambia. Now, if somebody says Gambians are bad people, you're going to say, no, they're not bad people. People are going to tell you Pakistanis are bad people, right? Indians are bad people. I'm like, no, they're not. That's my first reaction. They're going to say, no, but do you know, don't, don't you remember so-and-so in Pakistan? Right? So-and-so in Gambia, the previous, you know, whatever, right? And you're going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slowly, slowly, you're going to start getting convinced. Muslims have been made convinced that you're bad people and that you're terrorists and it's part of the religion, in fact, to a certain degree. What you need to answer that question that I found to be the most effective is statistics. 
go and look at the statistics online of terrorists and proportion of various religions or ideologies and you'll see that yes Muslims have had terrorists no denying that but they're a minority when you look at all the terrorism in the world without statistics you are lost the way to answer this is statistics because statistics is science people are infatuated with science you're gonna have to use it right another question similar one just want another question similar one why don't you Muslims speak out Something's just happened. Something's been bombed. Why don't you Muslims speak out? Now you're already troubled. You need condolence. Alright? And you're like, I don't know. Alhamdulillah, there's a website. I've forgotten the name of it, but if anybody wants it, I can, I can give it to them. They've listed on that website, I think it's even a non-Muslim of Dundas, listed all of the major scholars, and nearly all the major scholars' names are on there. Everybody from... Shaykh Yusuf Al-Qardawi to Mufti Ali Jumu'ah to Bimbaz to all the big names, Taqi Usmani, where they've condemned and they've got their links and everything. It's a massive list. But when you don't have this at your fingertips, and I know we as Imams should be telling you this from the members, right? So that you have the knowledge to be able to respond to this. Then you will be confident. Whenever you have to answer questions, answer questions with your back straight. Never like, oh yeah, yeah that's a bad problem. But for that, you're going to have to educate yourself. So that's why whoever organized this, may Allah bless you for doing this. Next question. Yes, the question brother is asking is a very spiritual question, right? Um, the question is that a lot of this goes down to nafs, uh, the soul, the ego, uh, the weakness of the self. So how do you improve that? Tell me if I'm, if I'm not, right? How do you improve that? What are the steps you can take? Now, I've got several answers to that, several lectures on that. Seven steps to corrupt, uh, to uh, correcting the corrupt nafs or something on Zamzam. There's numerous lectures on there, right? We've done several lectures on it. May Allah accept them and make them useful. But the main thing is that we as Muslims, I think what we need to do, we, we really need to do, I'm glad you asked it, we really need to do something about this. Aside from our prayers, I think we need a daily litany, a time with Allah. We're not connected to Allah. This is our problem. I know we're kind of going away from philosophy, theology, and creed to spirituality, but it's, this is what it is. Uh, th there's an Al-Balag online, they had run a, ran a course on atheism, 10 weeks. I had the last session, and that was about spirituality and this, because the answer is in Imam Ghazali, the same person I told you who was searching, he said he found the answer in spirituality, which is that you take some time to get to know your God by sitting and doing dhikr of Allah. It's with the dhikr of Allah, your heart will become calm. So I would suggest, for example, every day you do at least a hundred istighfar. Because that will remove the sins which prevent us from getting close. Astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, a hundred times morning, a hundred times in the evening. Then do a hundred durud sharif, salawat, morning and evening, that will invoke the blessings. Read some Quran with some thought and reflection, even if a page, even half a page. Then sit for at least five minutes and just meditate about Allah. If we don't give time to Allah, it's a big trouble. Another thing that I would suggest, um, I'm glad you asked this question. These are three books that I would really, really suggest. Firstly, we've got the Saviors of Islamic Spirits. A lot of the uh, demoralization, the feeling that man, Islam is being attacked right now. We're, we are literally in, you know, we are suffering at this point. 
Allah has brought us in this generation that we're suffering. But it's not been the, this is not the worst. We've had so many times that have been so much worse than this. But when you don't know that, you feel like this is the worst. This book I read when I was about 20. So then we published this after working on it for about 10 years. Because they had an old translation from the 1950s that sounded archaic. So we've modernized it with an introduction. And I believe this is an answer to a lot of understanding of what's going on in the world. It talks about the, this first volume, this, this book, it talks about the first seven centuries. The ups and downs of the Ummah. And some of that time, there was a time in Masjid Al-Aqsa where there was no prayer there for over 90 years. It had been overcome, there was a cross on top of the Qubbat al-Sakhra and there was no Adhan, no prayer, no Muslims. Right? Today it's uh, depressing when you look at what's going on there, but it's been worse. And in here it shows the ups, the downs and then Alhamdulillah the up. Down and then the up. This gives you a real good way to look at and reconnect and re-understand the wisdom behind things. Number two, more on general issues of what Islam is. A lot of us, if I tell you that your understanding of Islam is from two sources, maybe three. One, because you are, most of you who are born in a Muslim household is what your parents told you was Islam. That's your first source. Your second source is the local Malwi sub that you went to study by. Right? Generally they teach a bit. Right? Number three, maybe from lectures and bayans and, you know, programs. Have anybody done a formal research of Islam? Like read a proper book about Islam? Why should a Muslim read a book about Islam? You're already Muslim. Do you understand? Converts are much better sometimes than us who are born as Muslims. That's why this book, I read this book, is done by uh, Prince Ghazi, who's a... He's the cousin of the king of Jordan, but he's a scholar. He's, he's got two PhDs. He's a serious guy. One, one PhD from Azhar, one PhD from Princeton University. Right? And this book is one of the most amazing books I've read because he goes and gives an understanding of what Islam is in this modern century. And he was brought up in the West. Though he's Arab, he speaks English better than Arabic. Right? But mashallah, he's a very religious person. And I can vouch for that because I know him personally. I would suggest anybody serious should read this book, seriously. And number three is this uh, Al-Hizb Al-A'zam, which is a book of du'as. You want spirituality? I believe that the reason the Ummah, basically the Muslim Ummah, they survive through many ups and downs. The reason is, I think that they all would read something. Aside from their daily prayers and everything, this collection of du'as here, is so powerful that it's got all the du'as in there of everything we should be asking from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even if we don't realize it's important to ask. One du'a in there, Oh Allah, save me from evil old age. We don't even think about that right now. Oh Allah, make the best of my days, my final days. Right? We don't even think about that. If you can read this book and even finish it once, you want to read it more often, maybe finish it every two months or three months, read just two pages a day. Right? then insha'Allah it will help to develop this spirituality. We have to make an effort. If we don't make an effort, then, and then we want it to come for free, it's difficult. Yes, so shall I just answer this? Yes, please. Okay, very quickly then. You mentioned that people can become shaheed based on what they died from. I was told by friends and families that my brother and his family that died of fire in the Grenfell Tower, Ya Allah, died as shaheed. Insha'Allah they are. There are 70 people and insha'Allah there's a book that was written by one of my teachers in Urdu about those 70 people. And I don't think there's anything like that in English. I want to, inshallah, make dua. I want to bring that into English. 
Alright, so that people will know the 70 categories of people. So definitely if you've died in an accident, you are a type of shaheed, inshaAllah. Alhamdulillah, I had the belief in God, Allah, since I was little. But I don't see that in one of my daughters and it worries me very much. What can you do if your children refuse to believe and follow Islam besides making dua? You have to show them the beauty of Islam. That somebody else is showing them the beauty of something else. Maybe we haven't shown them the beauty of Islam. We're going to have to change our tactic. Change the whole of the way we do things. We're going to have to become more spiritual and more explanatory of why we pray. Why we fast. Why we do good things. What happens if you do the good things. Not that you must pray and you must do this and you must cover and this, that and the other. We're going to have to change our attitude completely. Learn more about the Quran, look at the Hadith and be more effective. And of course, carry on with your dua. But anyway, Jazakallah khair for all of you sitting here. May Allah bless you all. May Allah bless us all. We're just trying our best. We're trying our best. So let's make a quick dua, inshallah, and then we'll finish. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam. Tabarakta ya dhal jalali wal ikram. Allahumma ya dhal jalali wal ikram. Ya hayyu ya qayyum. Ya hannanu ya mannan. La ilaha illa ant subhanaka inna kunna min al-dhalimeen. Oh Allah, we ask you for your mercy. Oh Allah, we want your mercy. We want your forgiveness. We want your attention. Oh Allah, turn to us with your special attention. Oh Allah, without you, we would be nothing. Oh Allah, do not let our hearts remain devoid of your, of your love. Oh Allah, do not deprive us of your love. Oh Allah, we know we can't offer you too much. Oh Allah, we know we have many challenges out there. But oh Allah, we want to be close to you. Make that easy for us. Oh Allah, make your obedience beloved to our hearts. Make your disobedience hated in our hearts. Oh Allah, we ask that you forgive us all of the sins that we have committed, whether we remember them or whether we've forgotten them, whether they have become part of our life and we don't even know that they're sins anymore. Oh Allah, give us understanding, make us better people. Oh Allah, make us true da'is. Oh Allah, make us of those who are considered to be valuable and productive in this world. Save us from wasting our time. Oh Allah, allow us to be the guides of the guided ones. O oh Allah, allow us to be forces of good in this world. Protect us from being forces of evil. O oh Allah, protect us from our nafs and the consumerism. And O oh Allah, being overcome by all of the desires of this world. O oh Allah, help us. O oh Allah, assist us. And O oh Allah, us and our children and our progeny. O oh Allah, keep us steadfast on your faith. Keep us steadfast on your faith and don't allow us to be taken over by doubts. And O oh Allah, we ask that you grant us the kalima la ilaha illallah on our deathbed. And O oh Allah, you reward all of those who are here today and who have listened today. And O oh Allah, those who've organized this program and the organizers who've allowed this place to be used and everything else. And O oh Allah, we ask that you give them a great reward and do not let any of us being turned away from here without being completely forgiven. O oh Allah, send your abundant blessings on our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun alal mursaleen walhamdulillahi rabbil alam